Hello and welcome to Florida Politics Reviewed. I'm your host, Nora O'Neill. This is a podcast out of Florida Political Review, Florida's preeminent student political journal. For more in-depth coverage of Florida politics, visit our website, floridapoliticalreview.com, and follow us on Twitter at FLA Review. On today's episode, Florida Senator Marco Rubio casts his support for workers in the Amazon unionization battle. Rubio also gets a new challenger, Alan Ellison, in the 2022 midterm race. Then we have an update on Florida vaccine distribution. Lastly, some Florida nonprofits are under fire after a preliminary report by the Inspector General. We'll get into why on this episode of Florida Politics Reviewed. USA Today recently published an op-ed by Senator Marco Rubio on March 12th. It serves as another fascinating turn in the historic unionization battle playing out at an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer, Alabama. I'm joined once again by FPR writer Andrew Taramikin. Thanks for being here, Andrew. Of course. Always a pleasure to be on the show. Just to start, can you give the audience a breakdown on what's going on in Alabama? So workers at a warehouse in Bessemer called BHM1 are currently conducting a vote under National Labor Relations Board oversight on whether they will organize under the retail, wholesale, and department store union. So if successful, they would become the first unionized Amazon employees in the United States. Now, like most organized labor efforts, the Bessemer campaign has relied on political support from the left. Uh, You know, you have Senators Sherrod Brown of Ohio and Cory Booker of New Jersey leading a group of 13 senators in a letter urging Amazon to allow their workers to organize freely. And that letter included a lot of big progressive names like Elizabeth Warren, Ed Markey, Bernie Sanders. And in fact, Senator Sanders announced just hours before Rubio's op-ed was published that he would invite Amazon CEO to testify before the Senate Budget Committee on his company's anti-union efforts. Now, of course, Mr. Bezos declined that invitation. Uh, You even had President Joe Biden himself issue a message of support to workers in Alabama, but he did so without specifically mentioning Amazon, which was actually a corporate donor to his inauguration. Biden's endorsement also came a little late, and he drew some criticism for his initial silence, but the White House had concerns about neutrality, particularly violating the NLRB's independence. So ultimately, Biden did deliver his support, though, and he's aligned himself really closely with organized labor, stating in the first few days of his administration that it was the policy of the United States to support collective bargaining. His statement drew huge praise from the RWDSU and the AFL-CIO. The RWDSU president actually called it the most pro-union statement by a president in United States history. And his endorsement has been described by labor historians as the most overt support a president has given to a unionization fight since FDR himself in 1944. So as you can see, this fight has really strong support from influential Democrats, especially progressives in Congress. So that makes Florida Republican Marco Rubio a very unlikely ally. And so what did Rubio have to say about it in his editorial? So in USA Today, Rubio became the first high-profile member of the GOP to support the Bessemer workers. Um, And I'll basically give you his words. He said, when the conflict is between working Americans and a company whose leadership has decided to wage culture war against working class values, the choice is easy. I support the workers. So it was an interesting start. He obviously talks about 
culture war and working class values. Um, so his support isn't necessarily about, you know, wage issues or working conditions. Um, but Rubio does support the unionization fight. And this isn't actually the first time he's kind of ventured into labor politics. In 2018, he published an essay in The Atlantic where he espoused a rather unique uh, stance on unionization and support for unions. He says, and he's held this position for a few years now, that he opposes adversarial labor relations. Uh, he views unions as fundamentally necessary. His father was in a union, uh, but he believes unions and management have common than they do different and that it's the benefit of everyone that they all work together towards collectively beneficial uh, achievements rather than viewing it as labor versus management that's definitely not a conventional view um but in light of realignments in u.s politics where more and more working class voters especially working class white voters support the republican party it definitely makes sense for someone like rubio to stake out that position in your story, you write, while the explicit support of a senator with an 8% lifetime score on the AFL-CIO's legislative scorecard was itself rather surprising, Rubio's rationale and rhetoric supporting his position was not. Can you explain this? Uh, Rubio has a unique stance on labor, um, and his reasons for opposing Amazon were uh, using anti-competitive strategies to crush small businesses, banning conservative books, and blocking traditional charities from participating in their Amazon Smile program. And he also mentioned bowing to China's censorship demands. Rubio, of course, is a noted anti-China hawk. Um, so those are all very, you know conservative opposition to have against a company. Those are not the traditional reasons you hear in support of organized labor. Mm -hmm. um, and Rubio came very close to almost saying the quiet part out loud in his editorial, basically writing that a company like Amazon, which, you know, stakes out liberal social positions, talks about, you know, social justice and equity from a very liberal perspective, they shouldn't expect Republicans to do their dirty work. He basically said a lot of these companies, you know, stake out liberal positions when it's convenient, but then, you know, when their workers want help, when their workers want to be unionized, the companies turn to Republicans and say, hey, break up this union for us. And Rubio's basically saying, you can't do that to us. If you're going to go against us on every single issue, you can't expect us to be your friend now, which is a very blunt way of putting it. Um, but it seems to be kind of the position Rubio wants to stake out. You know, he made it very much about culture issues and working class, uh, particularly, you know, very Christian traditional values. Yeah. So with that being said, another thing that you wrote that really stood out to me was this. Rubio's editorial provides a glimpse at the nascent philosophy of right-wing laborism in the GOP, which is not so much about labor issues themselves as it is about appealing to the often conservative cultural values of working class Americans. Can you elaborate on this a little bit more? Sure. So essentially the New Deal coalition doesn't exist anymore. Um, and under kind of the 20th century uh, dichotomy of politics, Democrats were the working class party. You know, you had unions basically running the party at times. Um, so you had this very broad coalition that included, you know, these working class white people, especially in rural districts. Um, that support has pretty much all but faded away with this kind of new Democrat phase of liberalism that's taken over that party. So a lot of working class white voters have shifted to the Republican Party, especially in the Donald Trump era. Um, now, to be clear, Democrats did still win a majority 
of low-income voters in the 2020 elections, but whereas their majority used to be 90 to 10, now it's more like 55 to 45. And Republicans like Marco Rubio, like Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, they really want to take advantage of this realignment by rebranding themselves as kind of a pro-worker party. Mm -hmm. Now, the party's actual economic and labor relations positions are still very conservative. You know, these people still support right to work laws and stuff like that. Um, But polling data is indicating that a lot of these conservative voters that they're starting to win over, their top issues aren't really economic anymore, uh, mainly because neither party really holds those New Deal positions. So, you know, voters like the kind Rubio's trying to win over, their top issues are things like immigration, things like cultural issues. So appealing to kind of working class values, as he says, and talking about culture war may be the way to win over some of those voters because they may not feel as though they're getting anything out of the Democratic Party anymore. You can find Andrew on Twitter at Andrew Taramikin. Thanks for talking to me, Andrew. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Speaking of Marco Rubio, Democrat and two-time congressional candidate from Highlands County, Alan Ellison, has filed to challenge the two-term incumbent in the 2022 midterm election. I'm here with FPR writer Cayman Forbes. How are you today, Cayman? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Um, Just to start, can you tell me a little bit about who Ellison is? Yeah, so Ellison grew up in a pretty rural community in Hardy County, Florida. He grew up with six siblings and then eventually went to South Florida State College to earn a degree in cosmetology. He also met his wife there, Dr. Samantha Ellison, in that college. He said that through this experience, he learned how to listen to people, how to connect, be open-minded, um, be resourceful, and solve problems. And Ellison learned and is not a stranger to fast-paced campaign lifestyle because he has run for Congress twice in the past, um, once against or twice against Craig Stubbe in Florida's 17th Congressional District. Ellison did lose both of these races, um, but in 2018, he did receive a 38% of the vote against Doobie, and this was after running in place of a Democrat, April Friedman, who unfortunately died during her election bid. The previous campaigns have helped him gain experience in um, that is necessary for a federal election, and so will be applicable to the upcoming one. And what is his platform? So his campaign platform is centered on improving the quality of life for all citizens, which is a um, focus on social security, health care, women's roots, veterans care, disability benefits, infrastructure, education, sustainability, and healing the partisan divide in the country. He's argued that he's watched career politicians stand by and do absolutely nothing for our people and fill this nation with hate through their divisive rhetoric. He's also said that they've watched um, them line their pockets at the expense of the American people while our fellow citizens struggle to make ends meet. And basically, he just says, I say enough is enough. This was in his announcement about um, filing for the seat. Does Rubio have any more challengers at this point? Yeah, so there are two other challengers who have filed um, to unseat Marco Rubio, a Democrat and an independent. However, according to FEC records, only Rubio and Ellison have attained any sort of money or fundraising. Um, This money will give Ellison a significant advantage against the other opponents, um, possibly trying to unseat Rubio um, in the 2022 election. Mm -hmm. And you wrote that Ellison is predicted to face an uphill battle in unseating Rubio, who's one of the most prominent senators in current politics. Can you explain why? 
Yeah, well, Rubio is a pretty household name. It's a very, he's a very popular and powerful senator and has years of experience in the Senate and in public um, service. And as well as many people know, a presidential bid in 2016, and he went very far in that, and that gave him his status as a household name. Incumbents like Rubio also hold not only a financial advantage, but they also have an average of 8% ahead of their opponent. Incumbency is just something that really is a big advantage um, in any general or federal election. Mm-hmm. But more recently, people have this, or studies have found that this advantage has started to diminish um, to about 3%, specifically due to partisan ties. People are mostly sticking with um, their party. These circumstances make it possible for other candidates such as Ellison to break through the margin of error and possibly come out victorious if people um, or more more people end up voting Democratic or, or registered as Democratic. You can find Cayman on Twitter at Cayman underscore Forbes. Thanks again for talking to me. Thank you. Now for an update on vaccine distribution in Florida. Following his inauguration, President Biden promised to distribute all available doses of the coronavirus vaccine. Governor DeSantis feels that Biden is already falling short of his promise, causing tension between Florida and the federal government shortly after Biden was sworn in. I'm here with FPR writer David Ott. Thank you for being here, David. Thanks for having me on the show. So let's start with an update on the fact that teachers have become eligible for the vaccine recently, which is great news. How is this possible? So it's actually kind of become a very interesting and hot topic uh, in Florida as of the moment. So in a news conference in Crystal River, uh, Governor DeSantis announced that Florida educators of 50 years and up would be eligible for the vaccine. And, you know, that's fantastic news, of course. But then President Biden came out a week later and he announced that, in fact, all educators, K through 12 and daycare workers would be uh, eligible for this vaccine. and uh, this directly, you know, kind of goes against DeSantis's strategy, but I think that it's really beneficial and is going to be a great thing overall for all Florida educators. Mm-hmm. It seems that Biden and DeSantis have become increasingly at odds with one another regarding vaccine distribution. Could you explain that a little bit? Right. So DeSantis has obviously expressed concern over the insufficient number of vaccines being sent to Florida, especially following the establishment of his seniors first campaign. The Seniors First campaign, for those of you unfamiliar, is a campaign that uh, Governor DeSantis launched in late January that basically says that if you're 65 years or older in the state of Florida, that 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 population will receive 70% of the vaccines sent sent to Florida. This vaccine has been met uh, with a greater, much greater demand than uh, anticipated, which has led to, you know, a lot of people wanting that. Yeah. And so what has Biden's administration said about this? Uh, so, again, on January 25th, uh, Biden's press secretary directly addressed DeSantis's concerns about Florida vaccine distribution in a White House press conference. She said, we're data first here, fact first here. They've only distributed about 50% of the vaccines that they've been given in Florida, so clearly they have a good deal of the vaccine. She went on to say uh, later that the president is going to be focused on effective vaccine distribution in a bipartisan manner, regardless of what any elected official may have to say. But, you know, after all of this was all said and done, Florida was averaging 260,000 doses per week uh, of the COVID-19 vaccine. And after this, the Biden administration managed to send 307, 
thousand doses to the state of Florida. And this is actually the largest uh, distribution of the COVID-19 vaccine that we've seen as of today. Mm -hmm. And so what is DeSantis saying about the progress Florida has made on vaccine distribution? He's very positive and optimistic. You know, he said in a press conference on February 1st that he plans to distribute the vaccines uh, as soon as possible. 4,000 of the initial doses are, of the Moderna vaccine are going to be handed out in a drive-up site in the villages. 5,000 of the doses will be given out at Kings Point, a senior community in Sunsteady Center. And 3,500 of the doses will be given at the Palmera community in Broward County. You can find David on Twitter at David underscore ought 12. Thanks for talking to me, David. Thanks for having me. And reporting for this segment was done by Alexandra Stoller. You can find her work on floridapoliticalreview.com. One particular group of nonprofit executives has recently been under fire for failing one especially important task, handling and justifying their own salaries. Nine Florida nonprofit organizations in contracts with the Department of Children and Families have found to be overcompensating their executives in a preliminary report by the Inspector General. According to Florida state law, these nonprofits have overpaid their executives by a total of more than $3 million annually. I'm here with FPR writer Mia Cafaro. Thanks for being here, Mia. Hi, Norman. Thank you so much for having me. So what prompted this investigation into nonprofits and where are we at now with DeSantis's executive order? So last year at the beginning of 2020, the Florida Coalition Against Domestic Violence, which is a nonprofit, was found to have mismanaged seven and a half million dollars. This money should have gone to supporting domestic violence shelters, but instead it was allocated to Executive Officer Tiffany Carr. As a result of this investigation, Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order and all of the nonprofits that fall under this umbrella were required to review and report their financial statuses. So a lot of the issue comes down to the salaries being paid to top executives at these nonprofits. Tell me a little more about this. The executive order that DeSantis gave also instructed agencies to review IRS Form 990, and they had to determine whether or not they were overcompensating their executive teams. So according to Florida law, agencies and sole source contracts or agencies who receive significant funding from the state and federal government can't pay their executives over 50% more than the salary of the, the secretary of the Department of Children and Families. So the sal salary of the secretary right now is $220,880. So nonprofit executives can't be paid more than $331,320 annually. So there were 12 nonprofits who exceeded this pay cap and nine of those were found to have contracts with the Department of Children and Families. And so these nonprofits such as Lakeview Center and Big Bend Community-Based Care are denying that there has been any misconduct. Can you explain what they've been saying? The Lakeview Center was at the top of the list of nonprofits overpaying their executives. So the CEO, Allison Hill, has come out and said that the report of their misconduct contains quote-unquote significant errors and the CEO of Big Bend Community-Based Care, Community Mike Watkins, has also said that reports are not accurate. And he went on to say that since his organization is so big and diversified, the current executive salaries are justified and should be changed. And so what's next for these investigations? Chief Inspector General Melinda Miguel has made it clear that there's not an official investigation yet, but her and her office are reviewing all of the reports. Uh, moving forward, Miguel and her team are 
going to meet with each agency and go over their review procedures with them. And a final report will be released this summer and the next steps will be determined after that. You can find Mia on Twitter at Mia Cafaro. Thanks for talking to me, Mia. That's it for the show today. Again, be sure to visit our website, floridapoliticalreview.com, and you can find me on Twitter at N-O-R O'Neill. Thanks for listening to Florida Politics Reviewed.